Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. So we're just sort of trying to call attention to, again, sort of being intentional about your choices and realizing, sort of taking a, a moment to pause and think, like, who's represented now um, in this room or in this process or in uh, the study, um, and whether that's types of people in terms of gender or race or ethnicity or country of origin or even sort of position in the process, right? Um, if you're doing a project that involves a community, are there people from that community involved in the project, right? Um, are you just sort of going in and collecting data on people instead of with people? In their new book, Data Feminism, Catherine D'Ignazio and Lauren Klein challenge the way we currently think about data, data science, and data visualization and call for a new way of thinking about data. And there are new books this week. I'm your host, Jasmine McNeely. The book is Data Feminism, and I get to speak with Catherine D'Ignazio and Lauren Klein. Um, one of the first things we always like to do on new books and technology is to ask about the author. So who are Catherine D'Ignazio and Lauren Klein? <laughs> uh, like I... Uh... <laughs> Very existential sense. <laughs> um, uh, so this is Catherine. Um, so I'm a professor uh, in the Department of Urban Planning at MIT. Um, and let's see, my professional work has to do with uh, using technology for social change, uh, civic engagement, and data literacy. Well, I'm also a mom. I have three kids. Um, that actually, like shapes, uh, although I don't actually work directly on, you know, motherhood, that actually shapes a lot of my work and perspective. Um, and yeah, my background prior to coming into academia was in as an artist and a designer, and uh, also as a software developer, mm. so um, computer programmer, basically. Great. And Lauren? Hi, uh, I'm Lauren. Um, I'm also a mom. Catherine and I like to say we have five kids and four advanced degrees between us, which <laughs> all together is a lot. Um, and five I husbands, too. Just kidding. <laughs> 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 we wish. That would make life a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we, uh, I teach at uh, Emory University. Um, I'm jointly appointed between English and a new department called Quantitative Theory and Methods, which is a department that sort of tries to blend data science skills with liberal arts thinking. Um, before that, I actually worked at Georgia Tech, so I also have an engineering school background. And before I went to grad school, I also worked as a software developer. So um, my research areas tend to be in... Well, it used to be primarily in early American literature and culture, so sort of 18th and 19th century, um, in a particular areas uh, having to do with gender and race in a historical time period. But I've sort of been inching increasingly forward in time, uh, which is sort of what you see in data feminism. Hmm. And um, I tend to do a lot of computational and quantitative analyses of literary and cultural texts sort of drawing from my previous technical background combined with my domain expertise. 
Um, so that's sort of what brings me to this project from an intellectual perspective. So we have urban planning, we have uh, early English literature and history, we have art, we have software development, we have motherhood. Um, so how does this all link up to bring us data feminism? Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, that's a lot of the inputs right there. And I, I would actually say, yeah, in, in many ways, we are striving to kind of make an umbrella across a lot of these different worlds. Because, um, you know, one of the things that's sort of happening right now with um, data and data science is that it's really permeating all kind of aspects of life, whether it's sort of individual and personal life, or whether it's um, decisions that governments make about how to allocate resources, or whether it's how to market a new product, um, and so on and so forth. And so we're trying to we're, we're trying to work together to draw on all these domains to then kind of like inform. Um, I mean, I guess like at the most basic, the question that we're trying to answer or propose at least one answer to, it's not the answer, but the question is, uh, what would a feminist data science look like? Yeah, and I think one of the um, the really important things, right, is that right now, as Catherine mentioned, we're seeing in the world how all of these algorithms and machine learning systems and just sort of instances of data are sort of like pointing back to people and history and culture and context as sort of the reasons for a lot of the problems that we're seeing right now. But one of the things that Catherine and I really believe strongly is that looking to people and culture and context and history also can help give us solutions. Um, so one of the things we're trying to do is say, look, you know, this interdisciplinary training that looks at sort of the richness of life from a lot of different perspectives um, to really sort of help us point towards a more generative path forward. As we look at data science as it is right now, what are the systems or the major systems of power bringing about the results, particularly the negative disparate impacts that we're seeing, whether it's with criminal justice, whether it's with hospitals and hospital stays or who gets treatment first, whether it's with um, social services, but also you talk about assumptions in your book. What are those systems and assumptions that are bringing about these negative impacts? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we talk about pretty early on in the book, which is exactly this issue, issue which is that, you know, all of these tools that we have for collecting, analyzing making use of and also sort of experiencing the impact of data, they're just not distributed equally in the world. So all of the existing biases that we face and know about are sort of amplified by these data systems. Um, so this is in terms of sort of who has the resources, both um, financial, physical, intellectual, to sort of deal with these huge amounts of data. Um, and then who on the flip side sort of like just has sort of data collected on them because they don't have the resources onto um, themselves to manipulate these huge amounts of data. Um, you know, all of these, Catherine, I don't know if you want to jump in here. Um, mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that we see is that, you know, these aren't new problems, right? We just are sort of seeing them manifested in new ways because now so many of the decisions that are being made across all levels of society are taking place sort of on the basis of uh, data, data systems, and data analysis. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, I would add like um, when we say sort of unequal power, what we're really referring to like power is kind of just a way to say structural oppression. And so when we talk about that, we mean things like sexism, racism, colonialism. Um, these are the sort of um, 
larger kind of macro structural forces that shape our societies. We see it in health inequities. We see it in segregation in schools. We see that everywhere across the board. Um, and what happens is those structural things, um, you know, run through data and algorithms, reproduce those same structural things. So, you know, there's like a lot of conversation now about things like biased algorithms. And, you know, people are like super shocked, like, oh, my God, no way. The algorithm is racist. Well, no. Like, you know, when we are collecting uh, data in a racist way, like if we are doing uneven, unequal policing practices where communities of color are disproportionately policed, and then that's our data set of quote unquote crime, then that's what we end up with. Like we can't like uh, uh, sort of be biased that input when the input is already so biased. And so that's, that's sort of what we're trying to point out in the book is how do we kind of recognize and name those forces when we see them show up in our data products and our algorithms and things like that. Um, and also how do we kind of like back up? Cause you know, those are products. Like when you've made an algorithm, like that's kind of like the end point, you've made something that's like out in the world, that's doing something uh, for somebody. But how do we back up and really think about um, how we have a process where there's much more equal participation, in particular by people who are actually going to be impacted by these systems? And then how can we like really use data and technology to work for more liberatory, emancipatory outcomes? Now, in the book, you, you all don't just use data, but you tell stories. And I think the stories that you all tell are, are very interesting. So you open up with a story about a woman engineer who worked at, at NASA, one of the women from the book, uh, Hidden Figures. But then you go on to tell a lot of different stories. So what is the importance of storytelling and context when we think about data and data science for data feminism? Um, well, yeah, um, Catherine, again, I would say um, really important. So, and, and one of the things we're trying to do just from an author's perspective is we're trying to kind of draw people in through examples. Um, one of our goals for writing the book was that it be accessible, that it's not a dry, you know, it's not a dry sort of technical expose or uh study or something like that, but it's trying to show through the lives of the people who are either working on the systems or impacted by the systems or who develop their own counter systems, um, what are the very like kind of um, human ways <laughs> that all of these things are made manifest. So yeah, we take a very, um, yeah, very uh, storytelling, very example-based approach to try to then make these broader cases. Uh, we have like seven principles of data feminism. But yeah, all of those are um, sort of buttressed by the examples. And we try to use the examples to kind of build up to each of the principles. What is the importance of data science, but also data visualization? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that's super important about visualization is that's how most people encounter the results of data science, right? I mean, there's the people who perform the analyses, but then in order to convey the results, especially to a public, but certainly to sort of like an organization or if you're a community group and you want to um, present your results to like a larger audience and you want to make impact, having visuals really helps, right? Um, and so in the same way that decisions are being made, you know, well, decisions are being made always. Um, you know, from the minute that you decide to undertake some sort of database project, right, that you decide that this is a project then mm -hmm. can be addressed in da with data in some way. Um, but I think, you know, the, you know, and there's all sorts of research that has been 
that, that shows us people are really taken with images, right? You know, like you look at something and it's immediately captivated and especially when presented um, as a visualization as opposed to sort of like an illustration or an artwork, people tend to believe that visualizations are true uh, and are science based in science and sort of are conveying uh, data objectively to their eyes. And of course, like, we know, you know, while they're conveying information, um, they're conveying information that has been shaped by the person who made the visualization, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so all the same ways in which you need to look at larger systems, I think, also apply to how you look at uh, an image that you're encountering, you know, like, you know, on TV or on your phone or um, in the news. Um, and so one of the things that we want people to do is think about what they're looking at, what it shows them, what it doesn't show them, right? Like who or what is missing from the data or from the visualization. Um, What's the agenda behind the image? And then what are the design choices that might either sort of correspond with or sort of conversely, actually, like, might they, they could be improved um, if you thought about some alternate ways to present the data when you take into account all the different methods at your disposal um, and the sort of the argument that you want people to take away. Yeah. Yeah, and I would just add, like, our whole collaboration actually started from data visualization. So the first paper we wrote together was called Feminist Data Visualization. That was like kind of the first thing that we started talking about. Um, and then and then we realized, oh, you know, you can't really make a feminist data visualization because, again, the data visualization is kind of like the output of the whole kind of data processing pipeline. So you got to kind of like back up in the process and look at everything from like the formation of a research question, a data collection strategy, the analysis and cleaning and so on and so forth. So that's kind of how we ended up looking across kind of that whole sort of data science process. Um, but in, in a way we started with visualization as the thing. And then like the one other kind of sort of feminist concern, I would um, say that I think it's kind of intention with the main way that we tend to see and do data visualization is something that, Donna Haraway characterizes as the view from nowhere. So if you you think about like whose view is a data visualization, well, it's it's nobody's view, Mm -hmm. right? It's usually like a kind of a very top down, similar to like looking at a map or like you're really zoomed out and you're looking at Google Earth or something like that. That's not like an individual person's view. That's a very kind of distant view. You're sort of this disembodied eye looking down at everything. And that's both a really... um, awesome thing about data visualization. It's like sort of seductive that we can see all of these different things at the same time. And yet it's also kind of a trick. And Donna Haraway calls it the God trick because, you know, kind of tricks you into thinking that you're seeing everything, like you're seeing the whole picture, right? But actually there's a lot of stuff missing. And in particular, if you're talking about things that relate to um, to, to women, to marginalized groups in any way, there's often a lot that's being kind of reduced by this very high level of visualization. And so those things are intention, but not, um, but not compatible. Yeah. Like we don't say don't, don't ever do like the God trick because actually the God trick can be really useful sometimes in visualization. And at the same time, you all talk about uh, the problems with thinking about data and data visualizations as inherently objective or neutral, particularly when we think about data science and, and quantitative uh, uh, evidence that is used for all manner of things. When people say, well, how can these be biased when numbers or math is neutral or objective? Yeah, this is one of the most sort of um, pervasive things. And that's why I see it as, uh, I see this as a question actually of data literacy in certain ways. So like in, in many ways, we're still at a point in our society where um, 
you have these these few like some small set of shamans <laughs> who are mostly like male who are mostly white um, who are kind of on the inside of these tools, and then you have folks on the outside who see the products, who, which are um, can can be you know quite astounding and interesting and so on. Um, but there's this kind of lack of understanding and hence like um, inordinate trust that's placed um, in those things. Um, and I'm, I challenge this a lot. Like I teach um, the past five years, I've been teaching data journalists, and so I try to combat that um, kind of inherent trust in numbers and spreadsheets by having them do data collection activities. Mm -hmm. And by doing that themselves, they start to see, oh, like I had to make all these decisions. Like even if you're just walking around and like counting and categorizing people's shoes, let's say, like you have to make all these decisions about like, well, what kinds of things are you going to collect? Are you going to collect shoelaces? Which part is the shoelace? Which part is the heel? How are you going to describe the shoe? And then what parts of the shoe are you leaving out and which are like just never going to be captured by your data set. Um, and so even just like really simple things like that can start to get at some of that um, complexity. But I do think that it's, there's still that pervasive um, kind of public predisposition to trusting. And I don't know, like I've often thought about, or I've wondered if this would be similar to how people looked at photography, for example, like when people first started photographing things, like mm -hmm. maybe, you know, people would see a photograph and they'd be like, it's true. Look, <laughs> it's like truth captured in a paper form, you know, because there's this kind of, it's this new thing. But then now we're in an age with photography where, you know, so many people know how to use Photoshop, doctor things and make memes and things like that. And, you know, you don't necessarily know that you can trust your own eyes when you're looking at a photograph. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, I kind of wonder if we're kind of at an early stage of that. And I don't know, Lauren, if you have any thoughts about that, you probably know actually much more about the history of photography than I do. <laughs> but part of what we're trying to do in the book is to get people to think a little bit about all of the different situations that people individually might not think about um, because it doesn't apply to them personally, but there are all sorts of other people and situations and circumstances in the world that are, are sort of not easily captured by standard data collection methods. And then if you have some sort of result of a data analysis project that is based off of those assumptions, then it's not going to be like accurate or true or neutral even because assumptions about sort of types of gender, right, is baked into how you collect the data. Um, and so in that way, sort of this example of gender just opens up onto all of the different ways in which data is complicated. And it's always, you know, if, if, collect, if choices are made intentionally can be helpful as a, like a model or a representation or a generalization of a situation, but it's never going to get at the specificity of lived experience. So what is the importance of the default? And, and what is a possibility then for changing with respect to uh, defaults and data science? Yeah. So, I mean, so, um, you know, it's funny because it comes up a lot of times in art and design. So like I, I did my, I have a degree in fine arts. Um, and it's a funny thing because, you know, you ask an art or design team, like, who, who's your audience? Like, who are you designing for? That's like a classic question. And then the classic response is, well, everybody, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. um, and in reality, that is, of course, impossible. But what appears to be everybody, um, when we say everybody, often what we're actually doing is kind of tuning to the kind of uh, what we would call the default body. And that tends to align with dominant identities. So that would be white, that would be male, that would be cisgender, that would be heterosexual, that would be abled, and so on and so forth. Um, 
And so, and once you kind of uh, can understand that and like kind of understand, oh, like that, that's kind of who's embodied by that um, default position, um, we can start to think about like all of the powers and privilege that are baked into that. And, and consequently also kind of who's, um, whose bodies, whose experiences, whose histories are being silenced or ignored, um, both in sort of data science and in the visualization side of things. Um, and then I think it's also, you know, this also surfaces in things like software default. So, for example, Anna Lauren Hoffman talks about a lot about kind of how um, software sets up these default settings. So things like um uh, health apps come out. <laughs> the classic case that actually she discusses is Apple Health, where um, it took them something like four years to come up with a menstrual tracker, <laughs> mm. you know, whereas like women have been tracking their menstrual cycles for ages and ages and ages. So it's like a really, like, actually like pretty robust use case that would lend itself to um, a health app, like if you're coming up with health. And of course, like women or uh, people with uteruses are mm-hmm. like 50% at least of the population. Um, and so, yeah, like clear win to build that in. Um, but then it somehow took them four years to actually, and like a lot of user pressure and a bunch of things in the press for them to actually build in that feature. So that's one of these examples of like how, you know, that we end up just designing for those defaults and think, oh yeah, like but these other things are like edge cases when in fact they're really not. I don't know if you want to... Or the example, yeah, yeah. I mean, so we call this in the book the privilege hazard, right? And it's sort of, you know, and again, it's, it's not always intentional, right? But unless you're prompted to think about people who are unlike you or situations who are unlike you, you might not realize that you're being exclusionary. The example that I was talking about in one of my classes recently was Amazon, and they thought like, okay, you know, I bet we could automate this. Let's just look at the employees that we have. Um, and uh, you know, all of their employees, like they work here, so they're clearly good. Um, if we just look at their resumes, then we can train an uh, AI system to sort of find us resumes that are like our current employees. And they did this, and they almost immediately had to scrap it because they found that it was only it was only pulling uh, men at the applicant pool. Mm-hmm. It was discriminating against them as if you had gone to a women's college. They were immediately dismissed from the from the applicant pool. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, someone, I think, in a related study, did a sort of uh, a regression analysis of a similar system that found out that the features that most predicted whether or not you were going to be ranked highly by the algorithm was if your name was, I believe, Kyle, and if you played high school lacrosse. Um, Jared. You Jared. know, and you could sort of, and you, oh, right, 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 that's right. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and, you know, it's like, you know, again, like, it's, you know, it's a little bit funny to be like, oh, and then you think about it and you're like, oh, well, you know, no one at Amazon stopped to think, oh, we like the reason why it's predicting, you know, it's, it's giving preference to uh, male applicants who have a somewhat elite high school background is because the people already work here mm-hmm. are men with fairly elite backgrounds, right? And so had someone said like, hey, you know, maybe the goal, you know, Maybe the goal should not be to replicate the people you already have, um, but to think about other people who can contribute. Because also, you know, all of the business research shows that the more different perspectives you have in the room, um, you know, not just this is like better for society, but you actually create better products, which make more money. Um, You know, had they said that and they optimized for that instead, you know, we would end up in a different situation. But there was no one in the room at the time um, who sort of stopped to say, like, let's look around at us. Right. We're all kind of the same. 
maybe it would be a problem that our algorithm would replicate this. You know, everyone's in a rush. You know, everyone's under pressure. Um, we don't always stop to take time to think about these things. And, you know, again, if you're a member of the dominant group, and this is not true if you're not, um, but you're not always required to or sort of pushed to think about these things. Whereas if you are in a non-dominant position, um, you think about these things all the time. What do you all think of the possibilities of a more participatory data science? So making sure not just that different kinds of people are included, but that um, the, the people are creating systems or frameworks for how data, data usage, data collection happens. Yeah, I mean, that is so important, right? I mean, because as I was talking about in the beginning, you know, so many of the mechanisms that are already in place are just so disproportionately weighted towards people and institutions and corporations in power, right? And then that from the start means that you're not getting um, the the types of data that are either meaningful to the people who are impacted or could be whose lives could be helped by any of these processes. Um, and it also means that you're replicating a lot of the inequities that already exist. Like one of the examples we talk about in the book, and Catherine, you should feel free to jump in here afterwards, but there are sort of, it's like a tale of two similar projects. Um, they're both about evictions um, and situations where uh, landlords, try, you know, because of in, uh, gentrifying neighborhoods, want to get existing tenants out so that they can raise the rent and make more money. Um, and there are two projects that are, devoted to studying this issue and calling attention to it. And one is a grassroots community-based um, participatory project based in the Bay Area called the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project. Um, and the other is a research group from Princeton called the Eviction Lab um, run by a professor who is also intent on the same goal. Mm-hmm. Um, but they had two very different processes, right? Um the one in the Bay Area worked with community groups, had people self-report data, ended up with a lot of very locally meaningful data and more complete data because they actually talked to the people who were getting evicted. Um, and so this includes people who were evicted sort of through formal legal measures, you know, that the landlords followed, but also these sort of like ways of getting around the law where the landlord says like, oh, I'm going to renovate, you know, and then because they renovate, they can raise the rent. And the person who lived there can't afford it. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not formally evicted, but they're in effect evicted. Um, but this doesn't get reported in the eviction data. I mean, this data, um, you know, it's hard to collect because it involves, you know, building community trust, finding people who um, will be willing to participate in the project, spending a lot of time figuring out which neighborhoods were directly impacted. And the data that they produced was really robust. But messy, um, you know, because it came from lots of different people, mm-hmm. um, and it can't always be analyzed neatly. Meanwhile, this other project, um, the professor, you know, due to different institutional constraints, is like, oh, I can get this, you know, national housing data from the real estate board, um, and then I can, I can, you know, aggregate it and synthesize it and come up with these really large scale arguments about how eviction is happening in the United States. But the data that he was able to get. And was much less complete um, because it didn't include all of these sort of semi or pseudo official evictions, um, and, uh, and it sort of didn't have the local nuance of this project in the Bay Area. Both resulted in you know projects that are generative and call attention to the problem, um, but we have the tendency to assume that sort of bigger is better, bigger is somehow more more accurate or sort of more powerful. When mm-hmm. the reality with these two projects is that if you wanted to get a sort of more complete look at 
what was happening in the Bay Area, the smaller grassroots community-driven project would actually give you more of a detailed view. To me, like what this um, what this example brings up, so clearly we end up talking about a lot in the book, is um, process and, and process and participation. And that's an area that um, there are these emerging conversations in computer science and in like uh, fairness and accountability and transparency um, of these systems. Um, but conversations about process and participation really haven't quite yet made it intersecting with those fields. And, and I think where we would argue is that they really, really need to, because how do you, and it, this, I, I mean, I would say it's like kind of even like a whole kind of methodological area of study that there are lots of disciplines that have interesting models and lots of thinking about this. So things like fields like participatory design have thought a lot about this or human computer interaction or urban planning, like all of these have models for how do you incorporate people who are impacted, different kinds of stakeholders from different positions, constituents, and so on, into the process of designing what somebody might call an expert system or a, a park or a building or something like this. Um, and so I think those conversations are really emerging, but I actually see those as a real forefront where we, we really have to start thinking about this in a way at scale through lots of different kinds of experiments if we're going to make any progress on these conversations and ultimately design more equitable uh, data system. So from both of your answers, it seems like there are opportunities with respect to training and thinking about how we train people to deal with research and statistics and data, but also on the more grassroots side. And that is this movement of citizen science, open science to mm-hmm. get at the data that is actually excluded, but necessary. Yeah, absolutely. And then yeah, and I think that's why, for me, I, you know, I think data literacy uh, remains a huge um, sort of uh, area of interest for me because I, I think there are there are both there's there's power in being able to use data tools, and then there's also power in understanding what these tools and systems are capable of, even if what the response from the grassroots organization is is a, like one of like refusal, <laughs> like informed organizing so that you can basically stop something from happening, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I think like both of those are sort of really um, necessary areas. Like, and we need to be having more um, informed conversations. Like these, these conversations shouldn't be happening only in the realm of experts. They should be happening in like a lot of different spheres. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think also I just, one thing I was just uh, thinking about this and like, it seems like we may have diverged a long way from feminism, but actually this is such a feminist issue because the reason why there is this hierarchy and sort of imbalance between this belief and like the data scientists who know what to do and the community groups who like sort of, you know, in the current model, you know, are like maybe invited and in after the fact, you know, that's a real feminist issue because it's to this sort of like, valorization of the technical or the scientific or the mathematical over and above lived experience, the knowledge that you get from being in a community that you have from having spent time there and being able to perceive through um, sort of different ways of knowing what the real problems are. And a feminist perspective would really argue for placing these on the same level, right? And these are different forms of knowledge and experience. And one is not better than the other and more important than the other. And that is the reason why they both need to be there together on an equal plane from the start, right? Um, Because you learn certain things from data and you learn certain things from experience and both are things you learn, right? Both are forms of knowledge. And that's a real feminist principle that goes back, you know, 
to the earliest uh, the earliest instances of feminist activism and even theory. What's next for you all? <laughs> well, I, I've just started a new job, so <laughs> I'm trying to just figure out how to teach my classes this semester. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but no, I'm actually also uh, one of the other things trying to get off the ground is uh, I've just formed a lab called the Data Plus Feminism Lab, where um, what we're trying to do is sort of on this model of um, process, like how do we work with um, activists, with grassroots groups, um, with various kinds of stakeholders, and really look at how do we use uh, data and technology for um race and gender equity. So that's, that's kind of where we're headed, but I can't tell you any more specifics because it literally just got founded like two weeks ago. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. I also, I'm sort of like Catherine. I'm at the place of like, we wrote this book uh, out in March. You can pre-order it. Um, and uh, you know, it's really a call to action, but I really felt that I wanted to not just sort of call the action, but actually act. Um, and so I, right now I'm teaching a class called Feminist Data Science, um, and I'm really trying to sort of put into practice a lot of the principles we talk about in the book and try to get um, my students to think about not just sort of what, uh, you know, the first uh, step of the, of the challenge, which we say in the book is to sort of name and recognize and describe these uh, unequal systems of power, but then the second step is to change them. Um, so we're really trying to uh, start to do some of that work in the classroom and ideally sort of training up the next generation of intersectional feminist data scientists. Um, and so, you know, that it's, it's on GitHub, you can Google it, you can, you can sort of track it if you want. Um, and I'm also sort of returning to some of my own work uh, sort of once again, inspired by some of this feminist thinking, um, I'm working on a book actually about the history of data visualization, um, which sort of takes that sort of starts from this view actually uh, that I was just talking about. That sort of there's multiple ways of um, presenting knowledge and multiple ways of understanding what knowledge is. That if we go back to this long history of data visualization, like in the 18th and 19th centuries, we actually see. Um, people uh, designing in this way, you know, from the very start. Um, and then I have another project, which is about um, using some advanced data science methods to try to understand a little bit more about the abolitionist movement in the 19th century United States and trying to sort of see if we can find some interesting large-scale signals that support some recent arguments about how uh, Black people and Black women in particular were really on the vanguard of abolition in the 19th century in contrast to sort of like standard accounts of, you know, like the the white men newspaper editors, you know, delivering their fiery speeches and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, so I think we would love to have... Um, just hear from folks both who, you know, agree and are like, yay, but also folks who dissent or see um, a different perspective or see things that have been left out. We see this as kind of continuing a conversation and um, we don't feel like the work is finished.